A big thank you to all the companies that are helping support the Real Rescue Podcast. SR3 Rescue Concepts, Life Saving Systems Corporation, Breeze Eastern, and Flipping Coffee. If you've not sent these companies an email, you absolutely need to. You wanna know why? Well, it's because they all work together. When you email them, they will absolutely set you up for success. All of them have a great working relationship with each other. For helicopter training, contact SR3. For hoist information, contact Breeze Eastern. For rescue equipment, contact LSC. And for a great cup of coffee, contact Flipping Coffee. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. They are a training company that can help your training program with standards, safety, and maybe just an FAA refresher. They are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is awesome! With certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew members that offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, and ground operations. SR3 has partnered with Petzl to assist with any personal protective equipment inspection courses and the highly specific Lazard, which is used for helicopter cliff and mountain rescue. In addition to that, if you listen to our episode with Hans and Alvin, episode 10, and they used it on a boat rescue, which was amazing. So contact them today, sr3rescueconcepts.com. That's sr3rescueconcepts.com. Or see them over on Instagram at sr3 underscore rescue. Then we have Life Saving Systems Corporation, who manufactures the world's toughest helicopter rescue gear. From their Triton harness, which is my favorite rescueman harness, to the rescue basket, litters, and of course the most popular hoist hook in helicopters, the D-Lock. The team at LSC cuts, bends, welds, and machines these products into existence every day. We do our work so you can do yours. LSC, tough gear for tough jobs. Check them out today at lifesavingsystems.com and follow them on Instagram at Rescue Gear. That's at R-E-S-Q-G-E-A-R. Breeze Easton. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuer operations and those rescued has not. Contact Breeze today by visiting breeze-eastern.com. That's breeze-eastern.com. Then we have Flipping Coffee. At Flipping Coffee, we roast each batch to perfection to bring a smooth, delicious cup of coffee that you won't find in most other brands. We like to keep it simple, brewing real coffee, using real ingredients for real coffee drinkers. Contact them today at FlippinCoffee.com to order your bag of freshly roasted coffee beans. As a bonus, you type in the promo code, all capital letters, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q, and you get 10% off. Thank you to all of our sponsors who are helping make this podcast grow. It's much appreciated. The bonus part about working around the world is you make friends around the world. My next guest is coming to us from Auckland, New Zealand. His name, Chris Deacon. 
Chris Deacon flies with Westpac helicopters out of the Auckland province. The stories that he has is amazing. I remember hearing the first couple of these stories uh, when we first met and blew me away. So when I decided that I wanted to do this podcast, he was one of my first phone calls. Even though he was a little reluctant on coming on, he comes on anyway and shares some of his stories. They are fantastic. So I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. Please welcome Chris Deacon. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Real Rescue Podcast. I have an incredible guest with me today, a true friend of mine that uh, we've known each other now for years, but he's coming to us from Auckland, New Zealand, Mr. Chris Deacon. What's up, Deke? Hey, Jason. Really nice to uh, chat with you. So, um, yeah, really, it's it's been a it's been a love affair from first sight, really, hasn't it? <laughs> It has indeed. It has indeed. Uh, for everybody, I, I'll give kind of a little backstory between you and I. So this was kind of a unique scenario as to where you and I met and hung out and worked together, which was in Myanmar of all countries. And if you don't know where Myanmar is, spin the globe, you find Thailand and uh, Vietnam and Laos. And then just to the west of that, you have Myanmar. And Chris and I were working out there. You were working with uh, SOS International at the time. I was working with Priority One Air Rescue at the time. And we were working together at Heli Union Helicopters at the time. And what an opportunity we had with, you had literally three different cultures coming together to support a search and rescue agency for offshore work off Myanmar in a totally different country. It was awesome. And we did a, a, a killer job to make that happen. So, so fun. So fun. Some of my yeah. favorite memories. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th- I think, I think what made it work, uh, Jason, you know, you talk about, um, you know, cultures coming together, but really I think there was um, the, the overriding culture was just a, uh, a desire to give the best possible rescue service um, and health care to, to those in, in the uh, project. And I think we're all of us there, yourself and I and the pilots, you know, who got on board, um, we're all driven to, to learn. And um, we all came with a different set of uh, group of uh, skill sets and um, we put them all together. And it was, it was that combination, you know, and everyone was willing to learn. And, um, you know, and I think that's why you and I sort of got on so well is, um, you know, you're a great listener and, you know, you're willing to accept uh, new ideas and I had to accept new ideas and we're able to communicate well and, and bring together um, a whole host of experience. Yeah. Very much so. And I actually, I still think about a lot of the ideas that you and I were batting around off each other's things that you guys do down in New Zealand and then, you know, things trying to bring stuff back to the U S and I think you did a lot of the same with a lot of our talks, which was just so fun because 
Yeah, it was just like, it was one of those things I remember sitting like, well, well heck, why didn't I think of that? That's brilliant. You know, <laughs> something so simple. Yeah. So it was fun. Yeah. Time. But all right. So, but for everybody out there that doesn't know you, Chris, uh, just introduce yourself. Tell everybody who you are, where you're from, and how you got into search and rescue. Well, um, I've been, uh, I got into search and rescue uh, through the ambulance service. So I became an ambulance officer first and then became in New Zealand what's known as an intensive care paramedic, which is, there's all different names for paramedics around the world. And basically it's just an, you know, an advanced paramedic you know, with uh, RSI and you know, all the associated airway skills and chest decompression and all the advanced drugs that modern paramedics have around the world. So I think our, our procedures are pretty much the same as um, the US, Australia and Europe. So, um, so once I was an intensive care paramedic, I got employed by the Auckland Westpac Rescue Helicopter full-time in 1997 uh, I'd started part-time in 1993, so I think that means I've been working on the helicopter for about 29 years, uh, and That's then full-time since 97. So That's a long time. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fair while, and, and you see a few changes, you know, things change, and, um, you know, they uh, generally they go forward, sometimes they go sideways, but... Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting um, field to be in because um, search and rescue really is at the cutting edge. Um, you're placed in challenging situations, challenging environments, and of course, people only call a rescue helicopter if the patient's particularly unwell. So you sort of see we have lower job numbers than say a road ambulance, but you certainly get far more critically ill patients. Right. Right. Absolutely. Nice. Well, that's a, yeah. that's a good I way think, to get started. Uh, just to just to give an idea of what our ambulance, uh, our sorry, our helicopter is involved in, uh, we do a lot of primary response. So, um, and it's about 60% of our primary response would be medical and 40% trauma. And unlike the US, the US gets a lot of penetrating trauma, you know, gunshots and stabbings. We get a very low amount of, of penetrating trauma. We get a lot of blunt trauma. So that's, um, you know, quad bike rolls, uh, you know, a lot of farm injury things, you know, tractors rolling, trees falling on people, more sort of the rural and uh, rural orientated injuries, um, high speed motor vehicle accidents. Of course, um, you know, alcohol plays a huge role in that. So, what? Drunk, no busted way. Up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sur surprising though that may seem, that is the case <laughs> here as well. So, um, yeah. Hold my beer, and, watch and this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, our, our, what's interesting is our helicopter is very multi-role. And so when a job comes in, you know, we have to decide which configuration it's going to be in. So 
Um, you know, for your standard medical and accident, it's pretty much the same. But we also do inter-hospital transfers, so you got to strip stuff out. And, of course, for water jobs, wet winching, we um, reconfigure the machine. So you got to get pretty slick at pulling machines, putting them together and pulling them apart and um, making sure that nothing is missed in the role change. Yeah. So you guys probably have a pretty heavy checklist that you go through when you flip through uh, different configurations of the aircraft then, huh? Absolutely. Yes, there's the the checklists have evolved, but they're pretty slick now. And um, yeah, a, a checklists are absolutely uh, essential. Otherwise, things are missed. Yeah, nice. Man, that's awesome. Now, you and I were talking offline yeah. just, just a minute ago, but uh, you had mentioned to me that you actually were uh, getting a little motion sickness. You, you didn't like the sight of blood and uh, you were afraid of heights. And yet you are a intensive paramedic and flying in helicopters and getting hoisted from, I don't know, like 120 feet. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, well... Yeah, I think uh, I might be you know, exaggerating those things a little bit. I've sort of grown out of the motion sickness. But as a kid, I used to always get car sick. And um, and I can remember as a, when I used to be a builder, you know, if ever I saw my own blood especially, I, I, you know, I don't like needles. I, I hate going to the doctor. I hate getting blood tests and that sort of thing. So, uh, But I think a lot of guys are the same. You know, women are a lot stronger in that regard, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just funny it is so funny to me you know oh, whatever yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that's good. actually you know talking about the just going back to the checklists uh jason i i think that's something that's definitely a change in culture over the years once upon a time you know everyone used to pride themselves on remembering everything Whereas now that's just recognized as, you know, lunacy and, and, you know, checklists are a part of everything. And even, you know, medical procedures now are all, you know, with checklists. So it's a real step forward for the industry, I think. Yeah. And I totally agree with you. And, you know, like, and I'll agree with you with the fact that most of us have actually remembered the checklist and, and can say the checklist verbatim. But for me personally, I always open it up and I read it even though I know it's there uh, and I have it memorized, it's just read it. You never know when that one day you might miss that one step, which didn't seem like a big deal, but it is a big deal. And when you're out on scene, you're like, Oh crap, I forgot this or this didn't happen. And we didn't, we didn't equate for this. And it's because you were trying to memorize the checklist versus just reading through it and going through each step. And, and in all reality, when you read through a checklist, it shouldn't take that long, especially when you have a seasoned crew, it's going right through it. Boom, 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 done. So I agree with totally. you. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Now, so, um, go ahead. Yeah. So <clears throat> that, that's certainly been a change. Um, you know, I, I see, uh, you wanted to talk about how, how I got into search and rescue and, uh, a I little guess bit. it was just a gradual, it was just an evolution out of, out of, the ambulance service and because I actually had a passion for surf lifesaving so I could swim, you know, I'm a scuba diving instructor and, you know, I used to do 
uh, Ironman triathlons. So, you know, I was kind of a little bit fit. And I think these elements, you know, kids often ask, you know, oh, how do I get into a rescue helicopter? And, you know, how you get in there is you just make sure that you've got all the skills uh, um, in life that you need, you know, go out and swim, keep fit, be healthy and, and just expand who you are. Just if you're sitting on the couch, what playing PlayStation, that's not where you learn how to be a, <laughs> a rescue paramedic. You know, it's that is a fact. <laughs> that's a fact. You know, it's out, out, yeah. you know, buy yourself an old car and put a roll cage in it and go rally driving and, you know, get out there and, and get dirty. You know, yep, that's how yep. you become a rescue paramedic. Go dive in the ocean, get through some breakers, go yeah. fall in a lake for a little while and, and swim around. Uh, yeah. yeah. Go caught, you know, become a whitewater kayaker or rafter. I mean, all these sorts of people, these outdoor types of people are the ones that make, great para rescue paramedics because that's their life. They're used to those scenarios. Yeah. You know, they, they, when they get in a, a bit of white water, it's not new to them. That's what they were doing last weekend, you know? Yeah. 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 And so, it's, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, when I get in the surf, it's, it's not new to me. It's, it's what I was doing last week. I can go, Oh, well, the water's warmer this week than last week, you know? So, <laughs> totally. yeah, that's funny. Now, all right, Chris. So now that you, once you got into the whole rescue thing and you're on your helicopter and I know you've been doing this for, you said 29 years, that's a long time, but do you remember your very first case? No, <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> don't. I, I'd, have to, I'd have to look at my log book. I, I've got it lying around somewhere, but um, yeah, it's, it'd be a, uh, a fair while ago. Um, you know what? And actually, I'm, I'm going to throw you a, a, a kudos here because in the 29 years, there is an article, which I'm going to bring up in a little a little bit, but you have done, you personally have done over 2,000 rescues with Westpac helicopters in New Zealand. So that's awesome. And, and the fact that you don't remember your first one, you know what? You get a pass for 2,000 <laughs> rescues. Yeah, that's okay. Because that was back in 2012 too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so, all right, so, all right. In that case, what about the first memorable rescue you got? What do you got? Okay. Uh, well, uh, I, I guess one of the, the things that I was involved in um, early on was I was a rescue diver for the uh, New Zealand Offshore Powerboat Association. And so we used to fly around in a, in a little Hughes 500 and, um, and, uh, rescue the powerboat guys when they crashed which likely wasn't a whole lot but in i think it was 1993 or 1994 we'd only just something we'd invented ourselves um we had a it was a hughes 500 and we'd connect it we'd made a system underneath it we'd put some brackets underneath and then we used the cargo hook and a ratchet on the Stokes basket so we could hook it up to the cargo hook and then just ping the cargo hook and the Stokes basket would come down. Um, and so we'd, we'd invented this ourselves and, um, 
this there was a big crash. Graham Horn crashed a boat called Fleet Lease, and there was an American guy, Ricky Ford, was driving it, and Tony Banks was the throttle guy. And anyway, um, Tony Banks and Ricky Ford got out relatively quickly, but uh, Graham Horn was stuck under there for over a minute underwater. And a mate of mine, Willie Heatley, jumped in first, pulled him out, and then I turned up in the other machine with the Stokes basket. And this uh, invention, we'd only just put it on the machine like 20 minutes before at the helipad, and the pilot had showed me because I'd just finished a late shift at, at, on the ambulance. And I turned up in the, only after having about five hours sleep. And he goes, hey, what do you think of this? And I said, mate, that looks great. Let's go. And then within 15 minutes of the start of the race, we were using it to rescue poor old Graham Horn. Oh, my god! We ended up giving uh, CPR to on – we static lined him back to the helipad. And, um, and uh, I did mouth-to-mouth uh, -mouth on him and then got some equipment and we resuscitated him and he ultimately survived, but um, he, he did have some residual uh, problems, but he, he had essentially suffered a traumatic brain injury and then, uh, you know, subsequently drowned. So it was, it was quite a serious crash, but uh, yeah, that was, um, that was a pretty big event. There, there's actually cow. a video of that somewhere. So, That's yeah, uh, and I, I have, I have seen that video. I remember you showing me and, the fact that, you know, he went through all that and then you jump in, get him out and resuscitate him to bring him back to life. I mean, he, I mean, you, you, you literally brought him back to life in that case. It's awesome. Yeah. Incredible. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah. You're training yeah, yeah, all the way I can, around. I can remember. Yeah. I can remember wandering down the boat ramp because he'd, you know, an ambulance came down to the helipad and, you know, took him up to Auckland hospital and I, was, I stayed at the pad to clean up the gear and that. And um, his wife came in to the marina and came up the boat ramp. She came up to see me and I didn't realize that I, I was still covered with, I had all his vomit because he'd been vomiting all over, you know, down my, across my face sort of thing. And uh, yeah, she was horrified. <laughs> yeah. So she's like, how is he? And I was, yeah, I was trying to say, oh, no, he's, yeah, he's ill, but. He's got a pulse sort of thing, but uh, having this guy meet her with, uh, yeah, I didn't look my best, I don't think. <laughs> you know what? That's okay. You know, it, well, again, <laughs> yeah. another, another pass because you brought it back to life. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Holy I was, God, it was a team. There, there was a couple of us there. So it was uh, um, actually the Westpac helicopter was just taking off to a job down at Waiheke. And a mate of mine was on there, Warren Burkett, and he he just turned to the pilot and said, "Oh, I, th I think Chris looks like he needs a hand. I think I think we better not go down to to this job we've been put on." And he he landed back on the pad and came across and and helped me with the recess. So, wow, yeah. nice! What a what a smart move yeah. on that guy's part too, man. That's great. Jeez. Yeah, he's a good dude. He, he works in Australia now, so. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> Chris, you know, uh, and this was one of the first cases that you and I had a conversation about while we were in Myanmar together. And, you know, cause we're, we're sitting around doing exactly what we're doing right now. Just sharing stories. And you tell me this and I'm like, are you kidding me? And, uh, yeah. <laughs> man, it, yeah, incredible. Man, it, well, what's interesting in a way about that job is that 
in the early days of offshore powerboat racing, what we used to do is we used to static line them uh, back to shore and then, you know, give them medical care. But what we would, what I, what we would do now is, um, so things evolve. And so the best thing would have been for Graham Horn, um, instead of flying him back to land and then treating him, is if once the Stoke bar, Stokes basket was in the water, if we'd actually extricated him up onto the back of a boat, you know, onto a rescue vessel, which yep. had all our medical equipment there. And uh, then you're able to give healthcare emergency first aid immediately rather than flying back underneath a helicopter back to dry land. If you can see the difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it makes sense and, too. How, how long so was your you, flight? Do you remember? It's only a short flight. It, it'd be um, probably two nautical miles, one and a half nautical miles. It's a short distance, but you know that made a difference if we'd pulled them out and put them onto a boat. And 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 these are these are the things we learn over time. And you you have to have a penchant for. Um, accepting change and learning and, and moving forward and, and examining how you do things and, and improving. Exactly. Yeah. And that's how you make things better. And that's how we change and make things better all the time. I totally agree with you with that. So, yeah, man, that's awesome. Yeah. Man, that's, that's incredible. Good job, yeah. dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now- I think, I think it's, there's a real balance between, just throwing things out because that's how we've always done them. And so we're not going to do them anymore that way and actually changing constructively, you know, it actually has to be evidence-based change, you know, something where you can actually justify and prove that there's benefit. Very much so. Very much so. Um, Yeah. You know, like learning and, benefiting from every case that you go on and, and everybody else's too. Cause again, this is something that you and I talked about in this particular case, because one of the things that we had talked about uh, is the minimal gear that you deploy into the water with. And, and you looked at me like, why are you wearing all of that crap? <laughs> I was like, well, this is what, you know, this is how we're trained to do it. And you're like, yeah, yeah. We don't wear that. You know, we're, we're dropping in with minimal gear and getting to the survivor and, going from there and it was a great conversation and i it was awesome so yeah yeah our 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 gear has um unfortunately we've become more cluttered and now instead of i don't we've um where i am instead of being rescue swimmers i I call ourselves uh rescue corks because (laughs) we can float but you can hardly move anywhere For the record, uh, yeah, Chris Deacon can swim because him and I did swim together, and I think he was faster than I was, which is rare. But you know, <laughs> uh, it was we had a blast. We did. So, all right. So now let me let me bring into this two thousand patients award that you received because it does talk about one of them. Uh, so inside your two thousand again, two thousand rescues is is awesome. I mean, just what a number to reach 
you know, for you to be on call and do this, but they mentioned one thing called the dolphin girl, Kelly Lawson, who was uh, crushed by a dolphin in 2006. What is that? It was was an interesting job um, because um, uh, we'd kicked off, we'd we'd just arrived at Auckland Hospital and we had to bundle one patient out the the door and, and offload them quickly. So there was there's time pressure and uh, my crewman at the time was saying, Oh, you know, dolphins are pretty big critter. Um, you know, she could be quite ill. And what had happened is Kelly would, had been sitting on the bow of a, of a little speedboat, a little runabout and um, just doing less than five knots. So that's perfectly legal in New Zealand. It's over five knots. You're not allowed to sit on the bow. And um, this dolphin got disorientated leapt up in the air and landed on top of her and she um ended up in the water unconscious and her her family dragged her back onto the boat and and took her ashore so when i arrived there she was unconscious on the beach and um you know as soon as i saw her i i pretty well straight away knew that she would need a chest uh, to be decompressed. But I kind of, you know, because I'd never done one before, I wasn't that keen. And she was still had output and uh, was breathing spontaneously. And then we, um, so we, you know, put some oxygen on, put an IV in, and then she respiratory arrested. And so I, I uh, gave her bilateral uh, needle thoracostomies and decompressed her left and right side of the chest. Um, But what was interesting is she had such massive subcutaneous emphysema that all the normal landmarks, you just couldn't see them. So I had, I was trying to find the second intercostal space in the mid clavicular line. And so what I did is I just measured on myself and I figured she was about the same height as me. I measured uh, down to the, from the sternal notch and, and, um, and then across uh, from the, I think it's the angle of Louie and, um, and uh, did that on myself and then did it on her and it ended up in the right place. And she got a pulse back and we transported to the hospital and um, transpires that, you know, because she was unconscious, she had a, a minor trabanic brain injury. She had a C-spine injury. She had broken every single rib bar two and had several flail segments uh, and had a uh, fractured pelvis. Holy so cow. any one of those sort of injuries in isolation could have killed her, but she survived a lot and she's gone on to get married to the guy that was driving the boat at the time. And they have two lovely children and they live down in Pauanui and, and she's just a great lady. And, and Leon, uh, Dion, her husband, Dion's husband is a, is a lovely chap as well. So, um, yeah. Oh man. Incredible. That's, Oh my gosh. Another life saved. Chris, that's, yeah. that's incredible. I, I, Landed on by a dolphin, man, just jacked her world all up. Holy cow. Well, I mean, you can imagine the weight of a, you know, a dolphin 
you know, it would have been, I don't know how heavy they are, three or 400 kgs just landing straight on top of your chest and it just completely smashed the chest. Wow. And, you know, she had bilateral tension nemothoraces, so, you know, she was unwell. Yeah. Man. Gosh, that's incredible. <laughs> Woo. Yeah. So, all right, so then we, I'm going to lean towards another one. You know, again, 2,000 rescues, which you're way above that now. Um, there is, hold on, let me find it real quick. Incredibly brave girl survives being impaled on a branch on Rakino Island. Is that pronounced correctly? Uh, yeah, Rakino. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a relatively, <laughs> relatively unremarkable job she she's just running along and a lovely little girl but just this um she tripped and fell on a stick and it just went all right through a leg i think it was pretty it's about a one inch diameter i'll put it in imperial for the americans or 25 <laughs> <Thanks. millimeter>. yeah <laughs> you can do a little bit of both my friend <laughs> Good on you, mate. <laughs> yeah, so about about one inch diameter, and it just went straight through her thigh, and um, yeah, so it was reasonably straightforward. You know, we just um, uh, gained IV access and uh, gave her adequate pain relief and splintered the stick. I, that's right. We got someone to run off and get one of those pruning saws because the branch was still a, attached to a, a tree, so. We, we had to chop the branch off the tree so she could, you know, because we didn't want to pull the stick out of her leg in case it involved uh, major blood vessels. So yeah. this guy ran off and got a pruning saw for us and we, <laughs> we hacked through. So, it was, yeah, it's a hard case. Holy cow. So, yeah, nice kid, though. Nice, nice family. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in, in our world, we don't, get to see a whole lot of uh survivors or people in the like you just talked about the the dolphin girl um and the fact that you know that she got married they have children you know and this you know saying they this person has a nice family you know is that something that you guys get to do quite often and that's have follow-up with the patients and the the families no, no, not not a lot. And uh, I'll talk about a particular case shortly where I have regrets that I haven't. But um, for example, Kelly, um, they've just been particularly friendly, and uh, they, you know, invited me out. I've been to to the horse races with them, and um, and uh, I've been down to see them, and you know, and just stayed with them and that sort of thing. And they're just nice people, and. The the young girl, how I know they're a nice family is, uh, they I think the the family turned up to a helicopter open day, and uh, shortly uh, which we were having shortly after her event. So I just got to meet her mum and her dad, and um, and her mum was at the event in the first place. So um, yeah, they're just nice people. But one of the cases awesome. that I yeah one of the cases that I regret not having made contact a, a mother wrote to me um there was an accident just prior to christmas probably 15 years ago now and a family 
was just uh, heading off together and a car came down the wrong side of the road and head on hit them. And the, I think the husband got killed immediately or he may have survived. I forget now. Anyway, the young, I transported the young girl and I could tell that she was incredibly ill, even though she had a good level of consciousness. Uh, so she had she had no traumatic brain injury as such, but she was incredibly pale and tachycardic, and you know I s- suspected that she had considerable blood loss from somewhere, and it subsequently proved to be she had split her liver. So I have seen cases previously where you know once they go to theatre and they get opened up. Uh, the tamponading effect is taken away and the, and the liver just splits and, well, just the bleeding uh, is not tamponaded anymore and they die. And that's exactly what happened to this young girl. Oh, so the man. mother was able to talk to her, her daughter, who I think was about 13 or 14, and um, say goodbye to her before she went to theatre and she, she never came out. And she wrote me a letter uh, just you know, saying that the family was devastated by this event and how they, um, you know, couldn't understand. Nobody's ever been able to explain why this guy was coming down the wrong side of the road. So, oh, that's, yeah, it that's doesn't terrible. always end happily. I have to say, no, it does yeah, it not. Yeah, we uh, yeah we have to deal with a lot of that on both sides. You know, some end well and some don't. Man, that's tough. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Well, Chris, I mean, I, whatever other stories you've got, I mean, lessons learned, I, I'm all in. So, well, I, I was just, you know, just to show what, you know, what a sort of a coward I sort of am in, the, in terms of, um, we went, uh, this is an interesting case, not so much um, from a medical standpoint. Uh, from a paramedic, but from the rescue standpoint, uh, in 2016, um, just prior to Christmas, there was a 39-foot boat tipped out on the Kuiper Harbour, which is a um, a west um, coast-facing harbour in New Zealand, and it's notorious for being exceptionally dangerous. Anyway, the skipper probably made some poor decisions and um a whole lot of guys uh, died eight eight of them died including the skipper and three of them survived so i i retrieved um two of the survivors from the water and recovered three of the bodies but um i think when people you know you say oh you've done two thousand missions and and the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter how many missions you've done you're always learning, you know, you're always, um, because if you don't, if you're not learning, if you think you know it all, you're going to come unstuck. And I can remember my overwhelming thought as I was heading out to the Kuiper, because it had been a windy day and I knew that the seas were about, you know, three to four metre swells, which means on the bar, you know, the waves would be, quite sizable, probably 12, 14, maybe 15 foot faces. 
Wow. I was hoping on the way out, boy, I just, I hope this, you know, it's only the radio that's failed and that that's the reason they can't make radio contact. And, and, uh, unfortunately on a, you know, once we got there, the, the coast guard fixed when airplane had located the wreck, located a couple of survivors and they dropped a smoke flare within, oh, 10 metres of where these guys were. It was a great smoke flare placement. But um, uh, <clears throat> what was, um, you know, what I think is important for, for all of the, you know, sort of rescue work in general is that you have a, you know, you have a heightened sense of anxiety because the situations that we're called to are always going to be challenging because those are the, the sea boats don't generally sink in flat glassy water. I mean, they do, but generally it's rough. Generally yeah. it's going to be dark. It's going to be, there's going to be a reason why they came unstuck. And so the, the challenge that we have as rescue services is that, you want your training to be realistic, but it can never be as challenging as the real thing because those real life situations are right on the, you know, they're right on the edge of what you can do. And typically, you know, it's always just before nightfall. So there's always light constraints. Well, that wasn't the case this time. It was about four or five o'clock in the afternoon, but, you know, there's always a whole lot of, um, factors that make a job more difficult. And though we train to try and, and uh, be experts in our field, you can never train every single, every single element. And so that's where I think life experience and just general uh, experience from years of doing a job, you can key together things that you've done in the past and, uh, and and these help you in in a whole host of challenging situations. So um, yeah, it's um, yeah. There's uh, training generally follows a fairly you know a formal uh, sequence, but you know rescues are always there's always something outside of the box. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh, very much so. And when you land outside that box and now you have to adapt and overcome to it, it's, it, uh, yeah. it, it puts a little bit of, again, there's a, there's a mindset you have to have going into it, you know, that you're, you're going to win. You're going to beat the elements. So. That's very true. Yeah. Um, you know, when, uh, when Kelly had the dolphin fall on top of her and she's lying there on a beach and her, her fiance is standing above, above me. And, you know, you're thinking, well, there's, there's only, they're all looking at me. Uh, there's only one guy that's going to um, save this person's life. And if, if I, if I mess it up, they, they will die. You right. know, you know that that, that responsibly responsibility is in your hands and your hands alone. So it's a sort of job where you got to, you know, it's like a baseball player. You got to step up to the plate. You know, there's only one guy with the bat in his hand and you, you've got to do the job. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, well, that job um, on the Kuiper where the boat overturned and you know, eight people drowned, I mean, it was um, the largest uh, maritime disaster in New Zealand since 1968, I think. Wow. And, um, yeah, so one of the decisions we faced on the Kuiper job is that, you know, we'd found two guys alive and I'd retrieved them. And then we uh, found what looked like a, a body. And so we sort of had to make a decision there and then, you know, are we going to disregard the body and carry on searching for hopefully more people that are alive? And, but of course, having a body is important too. You know, right. families want a body to be able to grieve over. So we had to make a decision there and then you know, whether to carry on searching for survivors or, or retrieve a deceased uh, person. And so we actually uh, retrieved, you know, once we'd got rid of the, uh, unloaded the two survivors back on the shore, we went, you know, we went out and every, um, actually, I think we got the first of the dead guys. We left them out on the hoist and flew back to shore with the other two survivors inside. And then we went out and got two more. So I recovered five of the, um, five of the 11. Wow. So, but the, these are decisions that sometimes only in hindsight, you know that they're either right or wrong. I mean, at the time, if there'd been someone else that was alive and needed, you know, sure we were looking out all the time, but you know, we were, uh, you know, we made the decision. We've come across a dead person. We'll rest. You know, we'll recover the body. Yeah. Um, and it, it transpired that there were, there were no other survivors. So it was the right thing to do, but yeah. sometimes you don't know. Yeah. And, and, you know, you bring up a great point, which I've actually mentioned a couple of times is you don't, right decision, wrong decision, you know, it. you made a decision at that moment in time with the information you had, that's what you got to do. And you can come back and, and regroup and debrief and maybe what, what I like to call Monday morning quarterback it and look at it from another angle say, well, I would have done this different or I would have done this different. But the fact of the matter is you had what you had in front of you at that moment in time and you made the best decision possible. That's what, all you can do. That, that is it. And then you go with it. <laughs> Absolutely right, Jason. And, um, you know, you can get stuck with analysis paralysis, you know. If you yeah. sit around just um, thinking of, of too much, you can end up not doing anything. And, and that's, that's worse. At least yeah. if, you, if you start a plan, get cracking on it, at least you're going in a direction. If it's the wrong direction, you can change that direction. But if you just sit there and ponder, yeah. that's worse than doing, you know, that's the worst thing you can do sometimes, Absolutely. I think. Absolutely. And you can always change. Like, like you said earlier, there's no rescue job that's ever been the same. You know, you can go into one and expecting something and then it's not going the way you want it. So change, adapt, you overcome. You know, maybe you didn't realize there was a reef there. Maybe you didn't realize the waves were going to be this big. Maybe you didn't realize the wind was going to be this strong. Change, just just adapt and, and overcome. That's that's what we do all the time. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, what uh, 
comes up all the time is um, you've got to make use of all resources. So just because you've got a helicopter and a winch doesn't mean that it's always the resource that has to do the rescue. So maybe the helicopter locates the patients and then by then some water asset has arrived. And so the safest thing is for a, you know, a water asset or some other asset to, um, you know, do the extrication. So you've got to be able to constantly change your plan, I think. Yes, absolutely. And and another great point, because what our overall goal is to do the best thing for the patient and or survivors or victims, whatever you want to call them or clarify them or classify them. Our job is to do the best thing for them to get them to safety. And if you have a vessel that's right there that can just pull them onto the boat and throw them in a warm blanket, you're good to go. If you, if you have to get them out of the water because they can't reach them, well then now you're using a rescue swimmer or the helicopter asset. And then there are times where you bring somebody on the boat and now all of a sudden they, they need critical care. So now you take them, hoist them right off the boat and now you're bringing them to uh, the local hospital for critical care. So it's, there's a combination of everything that, that you may have to use in each different scenario. It's so. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And if it's land-based, you know, you might have a, a SAR team and, you know, there's, there's an element of risk in no matter which way you rescue someone, you know, there's an element of risk in winching. There's an element of risk. um, If the patient goes by, by water and every job's different and every, patient has a different uh, condition so you, you just got to be thinking and you know, and be on be on your toes all the time and right try and not get tunnel vision about how what we're going to do yeah which is sometimes very hard to do like have that head on a swivel and think outside the box for a little bit you know yeah yeah and and I think that's where um, in a crew, uh, you know, your crew resource management where everybody contributes. So, you know, the crewman might come up with an idea, the, the pilot. And so if everyone's got, if you've established a culture where everyone gets listened to, then people give ideas. If you've, if you've got a culture where, well, the pilot sits up the front and I'm going to fly this damn thing. And you, you plebs, you're just so self-loading luggage in the back. Um, <laughs> that that's just doesn't help. You know, our pilots often make good suggestions around patient um, destinations and that, you know, sure. They're looking at it from a pilot point of view, weather conditions, you know, height restrictions and that sort of thing. But, you know, when you've got a whole team in the back in the, in, in the machine in the front and the back thinking and coming up with ideas, it's always, yeah, it's always healthy. Yeah, man. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much for sharing all these stories, man. This has been incredible. Uh, you know, uh, it's always the ones that stand out to us that, that are like, Oh yeah. Learn something from that one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, um, there's uh, yeah, there's lots of little 
you know, there's not enough time to talk about different <laughs> tips and tricks and things like that. But, you know, uh, as you work with the equipment you have, especially in the water, because the water is an unforgiving environment. Yeah, we're not, we're not aquatic critters per se. Um, you know, there's lots of little things you can learn about your equipment and, you know, how you manage your buoyancy and, um, you know, how you go about getting buoyancy to your patient. Because ultimately, that's why your people drown, is they don't, they're, they're not above, their head's not above the water. And if you can, you know, do that quickly, and you you need to have your head above the water, those are the things that matter. And, um, I mean, you look at in Myanmar, Jace, we spent a fair amount of time, you know, in the water, didn't we, swimming? And, and some of that water was moving fairly quickly. Yeah. And you know, I learned a lot of stuff there as well, you know. Just yeah. um, I got a lot of confidence uh, in around being under a 139 um, with a lot of downwash. And, you know, that, that's, that was quite rapid moving water there. So you, yeah. you just learn all the time, don't you? We absolutely. And and one of the things about like us being out there, like we had a, a killer rip current that was going through this inlet section. And I, I don't know what the knots were for the, the moving water, but it was, I mean, it was, I remember holding on to a buoy at one point to try to stay in location because you and I could not swim fast enough to keep up with the current. And it was, we were moving. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, that buoy just went, yeah, it just sunk. Yeah. yeah. With the current. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think on the chart we looked, and it was something like three knots, or you know, it was between two and three knots, or something. It was just unbelievable. It's really honking. And, and you know, you say two or three knots. I think it was a little bit faster than that. I think it was lying to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's only a guess. Uh, it was. Yeah. It was honking. It absolutely was honking. Yeah, it was like. I, in, I remember you and I boat. both being in the water in like an all-out sprint trying to keep up or trying to stay at the buoy without holding on to it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was good times. <laughs> man, that's funny. Well, Chris, well, um, before I let you go, I, I, if the floor is going to be open to you. If there's anything that you kind of want to discuss or, or pass on to other generations and other people around the world, man, <clears throat> you've got some amazing knowledge and experience. So... What do you got? Well, I, I just think uh, you just got to – anyone that says they know it all doesn't know anything because um, <laughs> you know, you're always learning and um, you got, you've got to keep your ears open and, and your mouth shut, really, uh, in a lot of ways. Well, keep your mouth open to share what you've learned and, um, and listen to what other people have to say because – in rescue, there's there's very few absolute right and wrong ways. There's lots of different ways of doing things, and ultimately, you know, we're we're, we're there for the patient. And um, you know, people have accidents, and uh, that's why we have rescue helicopters. And uh, yeah, just have a strong a strong team where everybody contributes and. Um, and just keep on training and learning. Training is paramount. You know, in emergency, we don't do the best we can do. We re revert to the level of our training. And so if you've had no training, 
in bad situations, things are going to go bad. So yeah. lots of training, lots of listening, and uh, constantly trying to improve. Man, I love it. I love it. You are so on point with that, man. That's awesome. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on, Chris. Uh, unless you've got anything else you want to pass, man, I, I'd love to have you back again too because I know you got more stories. I know you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a couple. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's been great, Jason. And I, I'd love to hear, um, you know, I just... I think the value in is, is, is uh, you know, you can have too many war stories. I think it's just uh, great to share the, um, the knowledge that other people have. I'd be very interested to hear what other people in the industry um, have been getting up to. Yeah. And, and you know what? I'll, I'll tell you what, you, you and I, we're going to set something up again so we can do this again. And then we're going to, we're going to pass even more good information, especially with what you guys are doing now in New Zealand, because it is, it's awesome down there. And, uh, you know, one day I hope to come down and fly with you because it would just be, it would be awesome. So, yeah, but, be fantastic. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so like I said, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, and I'll be in touch with you, man, for sure. Awesome. Hey, thanks a lot, Jace. Sure. And uh, been, been an absolute pleasure. Right on. Thank you. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute and like my daughters like to tell me, like and subscribe. Oh yeah. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story that they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you as a guest. Or if you have any questions about any of the rescues or anything else that we talk about here on this podcast, send me an email therealrescue at gmail.com that's t-h-e-r-e-a-l-r-e-s-q at gmail.com you can also check us out on our facebook and instagram page at the real rescue that's at t-h-e-r-e-a-l-r-e-s-q i also want to give a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today always remember that when that sar alarm goes off those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard. <laughs>